0: Well, especially our retreat is coming up. Our life in the Father's house, um, third session. I encourage you guys, as Elder Bob has. If you haven't signed up, please do so this morning. It is always a highlight of our year, our times together at our retreat, and it's doubly special because it is an in-house retreat. We have no outside guest speaker we need to impress or, you know, be on our best behavior for. We can truly let our guard down and. Um, just spend four days worshiping the Lord together uh, in the Word, prayer, and fellowship. And if, you, if you've never been to our retreat before, you might ask, "What is it like?" Well, it is really like our Sunday services. It is like Sundays, but you have it, you know, five times. It is like four times a Word, or five times the Word. I say five sessions, five times the prayer, five times the praise and singing. And five times of food, I guess, five times of and above-all fellowship. Uh, Life in the Father's House, one of the highlights is our fellowship together. Um, I'm kind of a fellowship monger myself. Uh, my wife and I, on Sunday nights, one of our traditions is uh, I ask her who she talked to. And we go through all the people that she's had fellowship with and how they're doing and their prayer requests and their needs. And then she asks me, how, who did I talk to? And I go to each person that I talked to. So we get twice a fellowship, even though it's just on each of us, right? And retreats are just five times that, where we can just meet everyone. After worship, we can just lounge around and just talk and and play ping pong, (laughs) you know, go all the good stuff, eat together. So I'm really looking forward to this retreat. If you have the opportunity, please make it a priority to come. And if you have a prior commitment and you can't be with us the whole time, Or even one spiritual meal. We're just down in San Diego two hours away. On a Sunday morning, take a nice leisurely drive out there and join us for Sunday worship. Or even maybe for a day or part-time. Please do join us. Well, we are in our four-part series on God's call to all men a Cornerstone. It must be the aspiration of all men to be overseers of their particular church. And so the first part was that it was a noble ambition, that if you aspire to have the qualities of a man befitting an elder, it's a colossus, it's a beautiful ambition, it's a good aspiration. Um, It is not self-willed because you're not seeking the office, you're not seeking the title or the position, you're seeking the work, the responsibility, and the character that befits the office, so it's not self-willed. Part two was The qualifications for an elder, and we studied that last week, godly character. The 14 traits that mark out a man that he is called by God to be a leader in the church, qualities that all men, these are marks of maturity, marks of spiritual maturity. These reveal that this man, in private and in public, has walked humbly before God. and These are spiritual fruits that are produced by, by, by abiding in the vine, so, qualities that all men are to aspire to. And then today we'll look at part three, a faithful shepherd of one's family. I thought through this, um, you know, why are we studying, uh, studying this um, ending last year and beginning 2004? I came up with three reasons for our study through this series. Number one, the first reason is, I mean, it's just the theme of our year. For 2004, we'll be focusing on the church, focusing on the doctrine of the church, love for Christ and his church, how to serve the church. And the best place to start is with the leaders. That's why we're doing this series. Second reason, with the current rate of growth, um, we are in need of more leaders currently. We have a lot of men who are serving and helping, and that's great. Bob and I, we love you men for that. But more and more as we grow, we need men who will do more than help and serve. We need men who will be men who will lead, who will take the responsibility and will be the point man, will lead the charge, will be pioneers, and take the responsibility of shepherding, of prayer, of caring for souls, of overseeing a ministry in their own hands. We need that currently, and we need more of that with months and years to come. It is with clear certainty that we need more elders in the near future. So it is my prayer. It is our prayer as elders of Cornerstone that our study in First Timothy three, see, right here, to ownership. please God. Thanks, Thanks Mike. It is our prayer that our study in 1 Timothy 3 will inspire our men to, uh, in Bob's famous words, step it up, right? Um, from our men and Milestone, uh, our young adult men, men who are pillars, men who are in the eyes of this world in the fall season of life, in the, light of, in the eyes of Christ. You're just starting. We want all men. We pray that all men... It would inspire them to step up. And the third reason for our study is, probably the most important reason, the, most, the foremost reason, is that I'm preaching to myself. This is a sermon, a series that I desperately need to hear in my own heart. It is a humiliating series for me. The um, you know, Gospel of John is you know, far easier because we're focusing on Christ. But as we're focusing on elders in the church, 1 Timothy 3, I can't help but look at my own life and see how far I fall short of the standard that God has demanded for elders in the church. I mean, the humility I found in my life last night. It's an embarrassing, humiliating experience to look at the godly man's picture in First Timothy 3 and then look at the mirror and look at my own life. It really is. I mean, I'm preaching the Word of God. It is perfect. I am not perfect. I'm far from that. Therefore, I am preaching above myself. We need to understand that, I, especially here, I am not what I preach. I am preaching the inherent perfect word of God, and I'm a servant administering the perfect word of the saints. And so it is a series that is greatly needed in my own heart, and Bob and I have talked about it, how it is refreshing to our hearts to be challenged again and again, are the high standards that God has set for us. Well, to that end, let's go to our text this morning, and I'll begin with the story. Our text is 1 Timothy 3, and I want to focus on verses 4 and 5, a shepherd of one's own family. Verse 4, Paul says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children under control, submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church? Well, let me start with a story about a man, a doctor named Evan O'Neill Kane. Evan O'Neill Kane, a pioneer in the medical profession. He was a chief surgeon of New York City's Summit Hospital in the early 20th century. Um, During his 37 years as a doctor, he had seen too many deaths and disabilities caused by general anesthesia. It was his opinion that most major operations could and should be done under the safer local anesthesia. And he wanted to operate on a major surgery using local anesthesia. But his only problem was he couldn't find any volunteers. No well, one volunteering, volunteer even at a discount rate, still under the knife, you know, still being alert and under general anesthesia. Understandably, well, until one day, someone finally stepped up, stepped forward to put his theory to the test. In 37 years, Dr. Evan Kane had conducted, had conducted nearly 4,000 appendectomies, all fairly routine, but this one would be different. The patient would remain awake throughout the entire operation. Before the surgery, the patient was prepped and wheeled into the operating room where a local anesthesia was administered. Dr. Kane began the operation and carefully cut to the surface tissues. He clamped off the blood vessels en the appendix. He located the organ and the 60-year-old surgeon pulled it up and he performed the surgery successfully. The patient experienced only minor discomfort. In fact, the patient, re- patient experienced, recovered with such remarkable speed that just two days after the surgery, he was released from the hospital. Dr. Kane's test was a brilliant success. The risks of general anesthesia could be avoided by using local anesthesia instead. This milestone surgery was performed on February 15, 1921, and the most significant fact of the surgery is that the surgeon and the patient had a lot in common. In fact, it was the same person. Because no one was volunteer for the surgery, Dr. Kane performed the surgery on himself. Can you believe that? He put his theory to the test. All right. He put his body on the local anesthesia with a mirror some sleight of hand, not sleight of hand, with a mirror and some... <laughs> The other kid, you know, cutting techniques, he performed surgery on himself. What an incredible example. He had a claim that this could be done. And to prove that claim, he did it to his own body. That This was the most powerful way to prove this point. Operate on yourself. Show by your own life that what you claim is true. And there is a parallel here with the leadership in the church. Same thing. You claim to be a mature man. You claim to have godly character. You come to church and show off your knowledge. Show off your reputation in the body. The definitive test of that claim, the way to prove that that claim is true, is by showing your life, your personal life, your character, and your reputation attested to you by your own family. All right. This is the way the church verifies the claims of a godly man. His leadership, his character, his godliness is proven by his own family. He exhibits a life of integrity and godliness and faithfulness in his own home. And if he can do it there, if he can do it before his wife, day in and day out, year after year, if he can do it before his children... Then he could do it in the church. This is the supreme test of what a man really is, what he is at home. Christian faith must first be proven at home. Private victories precede public victories. You know, Jim Carrey said this. He said, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Right? (laughs) And <laughs> every great man is a wife or a woman rolling her eyes. Uh it might be true in the world. All right, it's often true. But it must not be true for elders in the church. All right, I can't have students behind me rolling her eyes. He's preaching that, where does he get the authority to preach that? You know, Bob can't come up and preach it so he's like, you know. No. That must not be true for elders in the church. The wives of the children, they reveal man, the real man, behind the facade. Tom McCarthy wrote this, I quoted this last week, worth quoting again. If you want to know whether a man lives an exemplary life, whether he's consistent, whether he can teach and model the truth, and whether he can lead people to salvation, to holiness, and to serve God, then look at the most intimate relationships in his life and see if he can do it there. Look at his family, and you will find the people who know him best, who scrutinize him most closely. Ask them what kind of man he is. The people closest to you know you the best, and they can affirm or deny the genuineness of your faith in Christ. You know, this quote was so important to me. The first year of our marriage, I set it before my desk. It was the first thing I saw and the last thing I saw every day. It was a daily reminder that I live my Christian life at home. I must not be a weekend warrior spiritually. A daily reminder that if I can't lead my own life by instruction and by my example, then I have no business leading in the church. To me, guys, this is so important. This is you know, you underline that portion in the Bible. Highlight that portion. Right? Put post this all over it. I me, mean, this is so very important. Four reasons why to me this is so important. First of all, because it is so clear in the Scriptures. The Bible makes this clear, and it teaches it forcefully. I mean, read that verse again. That must is there in the Greek. He must manage his own household well with all dignity and keeping his children submissive. Verse 5, and it's an obvious question, it's historical. If he can't manage his own household, how can he manage the church? If he can't take care of his own life, how can he take care of others? If he can't help his own walk, what business does he have, leading others spiritually? I mean, it's obvious. The only other passage that talks about elders' qualifications is Titus 1.6, and it's the third qualification there. In Titus 1 6, the first one is above reproach, one woman man, and the third one is, he must have children who believe, who are not God's disobedient. And there's a debate. Is it believe or faithful? Well, it doesn't matter, right? There's a debate, and, you know, Bob and I, Bob talked this a few, few months ago, and I don't want to get into where we stand. We stand as loyal, faithful, right? Trusting. But regardless of all of that debate, if you have children who are wild and disobedient, that disqualifies you from being an elder anyways. Right? I mean, that's the emphasis of scriptures. like produces light. Your, the fruit reveals the root. Right? If, if, if your children are wild and disobedient, that's a direct reflection on the father, on the husband, on the man. So regardless of whether you're believing or not, that's the emphasis of Paul and the scriptures. That the children should be obvious. A man's quality. And it's obvious by just looking at his children. Second reason this is important is God has convicted my heart of this. It is one of my life's passions. I mean, I hope you guys see that in the decisions that I make, the life that I lead. I mean, I think. Um, Bob and I, we, we live very openly. Our lives are an open book. I, I think most everyone has been with Cornerstone more than a year. No one intimately you know my life, my family. And I hope that not just doctrinally, but through my decisions, through my life, this is clear that Bob's priority, and my priority is our family. And who put that conviction there? God did through the scriptures and through examples of other godly men. My my first battleground is my own heart. That's my, you know, that's my the major battleground. That's Gettysburg. That's where I fight my flesh, and dwelling sin. The second battleground is home. That's where I stand for Christ. And then it's that church. And then it's the world. Because it is so, such a strong passion in my heart. Bob and I, we want all cornerstone leaders to have that same passion. I mean, we, we want like-minded men in the area of priority of the family. That's how important it is for us. With well, the institution of marriage the family itself, passion for that. The third reason this is so important is because this is arguably the most neglected qualification for elders in the church today. Right. I think you'd agree with me. If the church has ignored a qualification for pastors in verses 4 and 5, it seems like the Christian church in America has lied it out, verses 4 and 5. I don't know how they, what kind of hermeneutic rules they use. I don't know how they execute this passage. But it's the least applied portion in this whole chapter. I don't understand why the Mormons understand verses 4 and 5, but pastors and evangelicals do not. How is that possible? Why is it the Mormons have a greater commitment to their families than Protestant Christians? How can we lag far behind in terms of commitment to the family than non-Christians? I've served in enough youth ministries to know that often the worst children, the the hearts that are hardest, the children, teenagers that are most rebellious, most disobedient, children of pastors children of elders children of leaders in the church so much so I don't know but when I find out about kind of a Christian they're, they're, they're loving the Lord and they're loving Christ and some of the church and they're PKs I'm so surprised because that is so uncommon I grieve personally when I hear about pastors neglecting their families I grieve when I hear from wives and children who are bitter and resentful towards the church because the church robbed them of their husband and their father. I sat next next to a missionary's wife in Kazakhstan at one of the conferences, and she has two teenage daughters, thir- two teenage daughters, 13 and 16. She was telling me how they left them in Germany at a boarding school because of their ministry in Kazakhstan. Her eyes were filled with tears, talking about how she misses her daughters, but her husband believes this is the will of God. Well, you know. I had have the heart to tell her anything. I just listened. So I was all praying for her, praying for her family, praying for her children. My heart was so grieved and burdened talking to her. I mean, I don't believe that's God's will. First week tells me it's not God's will. I left Elizabeth for two weeks. And it was so difficult. I can't contemplate putting her in a boarding school for years. Thirdly, there's so all part of it. It's so clear in the scriptures. That's so neglected today. Fourth reason is because the elders set the example for the whole church. That's why this is so important. The elders set the example. The future of the church is dependent upon them. The leaders of the church are a preview of the future of the church. You go to a church, and you want to know the future of that church? Look at the leaders. You want to know the future of the Bible church? Look at Bob and I. We're the future of the church. right? So, I don't know if the good news or bad news, but that's, that's the news, right? I mean, the leaders set the example. They are the example that the church follows, especially the men. All right. And as the leaders go, so will the church. So will the church. You know, this year, we will have at least four weddings at Cornerstone this year. Right? At least four. Our premarital class is packed, right? Each one of them is special, and I'm looking forward to each one of them. And because of my role in the church, I have a unique perspective at weddings, right? You know, when I go to most of my related games, I'm going have a cheap nosebleed seat, right? I can barely make out what the ball is, right? But at weddings, I have courtside seats. No, uh, better than that, I have the best seat in the house. <clears throat> I, 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 the way I see weddings and the way you guys see weddings is very different. They're standing right in front of me, right? The whole wedding, I see them panorama perspective um, to the whole service. I look at the groom, and usually he's nervous. He's somewhat fidgety, but on this day, he looks pretty good. He's wearing a tux, shaven, brand new haircut. Some guys need to put the makeup on. I'm not about that, but if they want to do that, they're fine, right? So he looks good. The bride is beautiful. She is nervous as well, you know, and she's kind of sad too because she's left her dad or family, but she's excited to start her new life with her husband. And as I stand there throughout the whole service, um, you know, I don't, you know, lose track, but maybe during, you know, when Bob is reading scripture or he's praying or maybe when a special song is, is playing or during the uh, candlelight um, um, part of the service, you know, in my mind trash lost the husband, and I personally pray for him, because I know, that God, man, it's all up to you, I pray for him, because it's up to you now, you're the man, you're going to lead this family, and you need to be a man from now on, you might have acted like a boy, and you might have been a boy until now, but from this point on, there's no turning back, you must be a godly man your wife depends on you your future children depend on you not only that your future generations depend on you and not only that your church it all depends on you and you know what? it goes double for elders it all starts with the elders they set the example for the church to follow and if the elders are neglecting the family, if they are not shepherding their lives, if they are not being servant leaders at home, if they are not teaching and disciplining their children at home, then guess what? It's only a matter of time before the men, the husbands, the fathers of the church follow that example, and the collapse of the church, the foregone conclusion. That is why it is so important and it's so crucial that elders have this quality of priority to his home. That is why Paul makes it so clear that a central mark of a godly man is his leadership at home, his commitment to his own family, and for you singles out there, this means it's your life. You might say, hey, I don't have a wife. I don't have children. Well, that means take care of your own life. Make sure your life is in order. That's the test. Make sure that your parents can affirm your faith. Make sure that your, your siblings can. Your roommates can. That is a test. Well, let's go through verses 4 and 5, step at a time. Maybe just a section at a time. We'll just look at it together. mean, it starts with, he must manage his own household. It's an absolute requirement of God. Manage means to rule over fear and lead. All clear understanding. You want to be an overseer at church, you must be an overseer at home. Because in the wisdom of God, there is direct continuity, direct consistency with life at home and life in the church. The two peas in a pod is the same thing. So what precedes public ministry must be private ministry of oversight at home. This word includes the idea of having the ability to provide, to manage, to oversee. Consider, he says he must manage his own household, pointing to the priority of his own home. He must not use the excuse of busyness of life and ministry, the busyness of work to neglect his own family. He must not be so busy being a leader to other families, to other wives, to other children, that he neglects his own wife. His own children. His first priority is to his own household. Household includes the wife, includes the children, or more than that. Everything that is connected with the home. Comprehensive managing. Encompassing spiritual, emotional, physical, intellectual aspects of the family. He is devoted priorities to his own household. Paul Forger says he must manage his own household, and his managing is not enough. He must be a colossus, mu- well. He must manage his household well, I mean, beautifully, all right, excellently. I mean, he, puts, he thinks about his home. He thinks about the culture of his home. He thinks about the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats. He makes strategic decisions concerning his own household. And he executes that decision and he carries it through. I mean, he's an excellent manager. He has foresight. He's thought through the implications of their decisions. Three, five, ten years down the road, forty years down the road. And he has made right decisions so that his family will be taken care of. Right. Also, the Greek word management is a verb, it's present parsable. It's talking about the current state of a household continual oversight is in due here, that presently he is managing his own household excellently. Bob and I, we talk about this often, the priority of our family, the current priority of our family. I can honestly say that we go all out for ministry. We strive not to use our family as an excuse not to use our family as a cop-out, you know. We don't want to hide behind our families and uh, idolize our families. We want to go all out and serve the Lord. But at the same time, we strive not to use ministry or work as an excuse for going all out at home. (coughs) We strive to make sure that all our ducks are in a row, whether family, work, ministry, personal life, our personal relationships, they're all at a high level. Right. That's what we strive after. It's not one or the other. We strive to make sure that all these things are pleasing to the Lord. Right. What about you? Let me ask you that. You know, we've been talking about husbands and fathers. Just focus on the single folks in our body for a moment. How are you managing your life? Your spiritual life at home your habits, your entertainment choices, your finances, everything connected to the house of the blood, in a way, is more dangerous for singles because there's there's not as high of accountability. Right? What you choose to do, you do. If you want to do it secretly, you can. It is more It requires a greater diligence, greater discipline on your part. Are you managing it well? Are you making sober, right decisions concerning your life? Are you caring for your soul with diligence and right doctrine? You know, I think I know our church well. I mean, it's a challenge for pastors to gauge the reality of the church because everybody is... Johnson Edward's around me. You know what I mean? Everybody's Elizabeth George around me. But the it's time to navigate through that and get to the reality of the person's spiritual state. So th- through all of that, I think I know our church fairly well. And I, I can say some of you guys are doing really well in this area. And I want to say some of you are not. That if I were to talk to your parents, they would say, you should hear her at home. Pastor James, you won't believe the way he talks to me. You wouldn't believe the things she says to me. If I were to talk to your siblings, they would say, You would not believe Pastor James. His poor example at home. Her poor example at home. You realize that your public life is proven by your private life. Singles, this is the starting point. Be responsible in the future. Start today. Start right now. Well, let's move on. In verse four, he must manage his own household well. He may focus on keeping his children under control. Other version says children respect him with the proper respect. His children are submissive. Here, Paul focused on the children, focuses on the children of the elders. And Paul says, His children become the proof of His spiritual leadership. <laughs> the fruit reveals the root. Children reveal the quality of the Father's authority, fa- Father's character. Children are honest. They're going to tell you the truth. By looking at the children, how they respect or disrespect the Father reveals His character at home. All right. The obvious implication is that his family is to be ordered, disciplined, and obedient. The children's obedience and respect for the father reveals his ability to, to, to lead. Where he is oversighted is to make sure his children respect him and obey him. The father makes sure that his children obey and respect their mother. He makes sure that the children respect and obey all authorities. Like grandparents, teachers, older siblings, church leaders. Right? This is what Paul focuses on. Bottom line is, Paul is asking, How is he as a father? What kind of father is he at home? Is he a godly father, an able father, an effective father? Now, as you all know, got a two, 19 month or 20 month old at home. I've just begun this journey of fatherhood. So I'm still learning myself. So I recruited a um, you know, godly man, R. Kent Hughes. He's a, grand, he's a grandfather of six. At the, at the time he wrote the book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. His Bible knowledge and life knowledge far surpassed his mind. I was <laughs> reading that book for this morning's study, I was greatly uh, encouraged by one of his... Um, by his lengthy statement here. Let me quote it to you. It's, it's worth hearing. Be mindful of that. It's a godly man. He's been a pastor for 37 years. The grandfather of six children. He's raised four sons. So know that he speaks with authority when he, when he talks about fatherhood. Lengthy quote. Stay with me. It'll be worth, worth our listening. Men, the mere fact of fatherhood has endowed you with terrifying power in the lives of your sons and daughters, because they have an innate, God-given passion for you. I came across a remarkable expression of this in Lance Morrow's book, The Chief, A Memoir of Fathers and Sons. From time to time, I have felt for my father a longing that was almost physical, something infantile and profound. It has bewildered me, even thrown me into depression because of my longing for my father. It is mysterious to me exactly what it is I wanted for my father. I have seen this longing in other men and now see it in my own sons. They're longing for me. I think that I have glimpsed it once or twice in my father's feelings about his father. One seeks to not return to the womb, but to a different thing. A father's Sponsorship or love in this world. A boy wants the aura and armament of his father. It is a deep yearning, but sometimes a little sad. A common enough masculine trait that is also vaguely unmanly. What surprises me is how angry a man becomes, sometimes in the grip of what is, in a sense, an unrequited passion when that longing is not returned. Our sons naturally want us. Perhaps, men, you have experienced something like this. You have just finished a run, and you're sitting on the porch, sweating like a horse, and smelling like one, and your son, or perhaps a little neighbor boy, sits down next to you. He leans against you, and he says, you smell good. This is the primal longing for one's father. And our daughter's hearts are also naturally turned towards us. The terrible fact is we can either grace our children or damn damn them with unrequited wounds which never seem to heal. Our society is awash with millions of daughters pathetically seeking the affection their fathers never gave them. And some of these daughters are at the sunset of their lives. In the extreme, there are myriads of sons who are denied a healthy, same-sex relationship with their father and now are spending the rest of their lives in search of their sexual identity via perversion and immorality. Men, as fathers, you have such power. You will have this terrible power until you die like you're not. In your attitude toward authority, in your attitude toward women, in your regard for God and the church... What terrifying responsibilities. This is truly the power of life and death. For these reasons, we live in a time of great social crisis. Whole segments of our society are bereft of male leadership. At the other end of the scale, there are strong men who give their best leadership to the marketplace, but they utterly fail at home. We are the men. And if God's purpose does not happen with the sons of the church, it will not happen. Men, there are few places where sanctified sweat will show greater dividends than in fathering. If you are willing to work at it, you can be a good father. If you are willing to sweat, you will see abundant blessing. I believe that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That children have an innate affinity towards their parents, a longing for love, especially from their father. And if it's not returned, it will result in disobedience. It will result in rebellion. It will result in the child turning to this world and wasting their life away. That is why God says he must manage his own household well and see to it. He must make it a point that he has a personal relationship with each child that they might respect him and obey him and be loyal to him. Oh, two more. <clears throat> he must manage his own household with all dignity. Talking about dignified authority. NIV says proper respect this point, not to the children, but more so to the father. The character of father's leadership is that it is dignified. He leads his family, leads his children in an honorable manner, in a respectable manner. It is not an oppressive rule. It is not an exasperating or threatening authority, but it is dignified and grave. And the final one, verse 5, it's a rhetorical question. It's not to be answered. The answer is so obvious, it is, it is just to be understood as a statement. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will they care for the church? It's a parenthetical statement, a rhetorical question of why this is so important. Right. If a man can't be a father to his own children, how can he be a father? The spiritual children in the church. The whole verse is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you can't manage yourself, and you can't manage your home, how can you even begin to manage the church? God makes that same argument in Jeremiah 12.5. If you have raced with men and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? Right. You can't race with men. Why well, would think about racing with horses? Right. Eli the priest remains a solemn warning to us. Because his sons were both immoral and greedy, First Samuel 2.12, sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. First Samuel 3.13 says, Eli failed to restrain them. So for Paul, it is clear that it is unthinkable to place a man in leadership who is failing as a leader in the home. And you know, I believe this, and I mean, Bob and I talk about this. We've talked about it. I've declared it. If Serin can't vouch for my faith, character, and conduct, my ability to shepherd her at home, if Elizabeth goes up and she sees something. Hypocritical, decadent, something warped about my Christianity at home, and she she gives her over, she gives herself over to a wild, uh, wasteful, disobedient life. I have no business being a pastor. I have no business being an elder of a church. I, mean, I will gladly step down and serve in the a team or something. You know, serve you know in children's ministry or or you know set up chairs and a snack or something. I No problem with that. Right? What's, more, what's important is upholding the, the, the truth, the integrity of scripture. Not my life or Bob's life. Right? Oh, closing thoughts. Three closing thoughts. <coughs> Let us uh, stand against our Christian culture and hold to a high standard for church leadership. I understand that the church is captive to a low standard for leadership, almost a no standard for leadership. But you and I together, let's go against that. Let's swim against the current, go against the tide, and hold to a biblical standard for qualifications for leaders in the church. Let's make sure that we strive to be tested and proven ourselves. Secondly, we aspire to the priority of the family. Singles um, strive to make um, your Christianity true at home. The point where your parents just have to respect you because your lives are so above reproach. Integrity, your character, your discipline is so clear. Uh, if Bob or I or any either lead leaders of the talk to your parents, they'd be like, eh, My son, he's a man. Or well, my daughter. i reproach at home. Right? Symbols, I see that in your own life. Husbands, fathers likewise. Right? Prove ourselves at home. I Miss mean, that's a dance, right? As elders in the church. The men ought to be this a Firing to be elders in the church. Every man should be just like a chained dog, wanting to minister, wanting to go to missions, wanting to serve the church, wanting to take on ten ministries at a time. And our response is no. Step back. Focus at home. Are you sure your home's in order? Are you sure your wife is shepherded? Are you sure your children aren't being raised right? You're taking care of your home, right? That's that's how we have to relate to one another. It is not. James, don't call me. Don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to serve. I'm too busy, my family, my life. And we ask you to serve. That's wrong? Right? Men ought to be just charging ahead. And we are the ones holding you back. Right? And finally, this is my third thought. The spiritual life of the family is the responsibility of the father. It's not children's ministry's responsibility. It's not the youth pastor. It's not the Christian school. Reps was telling me that was an advertisement for a Christian school on Christian radio. A father came on and said, oh, it's so great, this Christian school. I don't have to do anything at home. I, I don't have to teach the Bible. I don't have to pray. The school does it for me. And Rex was a, 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 unbelievable. And that was the advertisement for a Christian school. That's just, that's just wrong. Right. The salvation and sanctification The foremost concern and responsibility of the husband, of the father, and the mom. The church, Sunday school, they're all supplementary. May God raise godly men who will love their families as called for in the scriptures. Lord, we do thank you for the word. Um, Lord, it's so clear in the scriptures, but it is muddy in our hearts. It is apparent that it is muddy because of our faithlessness at home, how we fall short, and we confess that, Lord. We ask that you will forgive us. Lord, you will forgive us, men, for, for our lack, for our shortcomings, for our sinfulness, for our selfishness. Lord, that you will forgive us. Lord, you would help us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, you would grant us bigger hearts than we already have, greater wisdom beyond our years, greater comm- commitment to be the men, husbands, the fathers, you called to call us to be at home. And thereby, Lord, um, we bring forth a culture of true godliness in our church. In Jesus' name, amen or the I actually special food.